Election College episode 134, Andrew Jackson, his presidency and later life. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. So, Ben, Andrew Jackson, he's been a very busy guy. (laughs) I mean, he's been going to war. Yeah. He's been legislating. Uh Uh-huh. He's been doing the lawyer thing. Yeah. He's been doing some more war again. He's been up north. Uh He's been down south. Yeah. Kind of down east a little bit. You think he had time to like play golf or? I don't think golf was in his activity list. (laughs) Yeah. So the Tennessee legislature says, hey, Andy Jack, we're going to nominate you for president here in 1822. I'm sure they didn't say anything about 1822, but uh, <laughs> it was 1822 when they nominated him. And so they also elected him the U.S. Senator that, for that year. By 1824, the Democratic Republicans are the only really national party that is functional, meaning all the rest of them have imploded by this point. And the presidential candidates are kind of chosen by an informal caucus. And this isn't really uh, a favorable way to do things. It's just the way things are getting done. Yeah. So there were those who backed Treasury Secretary William H. Crawford for president and Albert Gallatin for vice president. But a Pennsylvania convention nominated Jackson for president a month later. And their point was that the irregular caucus ignored the voice of the people and was a vain hope that the American people might thus be deceived into a belief that Crawford was the regular Democratic candidate. So Gallatin criticized Jackson as an honest man and the idol of the worshipers of military glory, but from incapacity, military habits, and habitual disregard of laws and constitutional provisions, altogether unfit for the office looks like we've got some infighting yeah within the democratic republicans for sure i feel like last time somebody you know maybe like 20 years ago uh 20 years ago during this podcast time when uh somebody called somebody unfit altogether uh they got shot so maybe that's not the best idea that was aaron burr did that to our buddy alexander oh, hamilton to say his name yeah he you know he called him unfit and yeah. Anyway, uh, so Jackson and Crawford are around, and also Secretary of State Q and House Speaker Henry Clay. They're all candidates, and well, it's just it's a mess. <laughs> Jackson gets the most popular votes, and um, four states at this point actually don't even have popular ballots. So he gets the most popular votes, but he doesn't get a majority, and so all the electoral votes are split four ways. Uh, Jackson does end up having a plurality, but no candidate actually receives a majority. So the House of Representatives goes, and they choose Adams. And Jackson's like, um, so Adams won, and then afterwards he brings Henry Clay in, 
and Henry Clay is the one who helped him win, so that's corrupt. And we talked about this a few episodes ago, so go back and listen to it if you uh, have forgotten. But he's not happy, and he vows at that point, I'm going to take him down. Yeah, so Andy Jack resigns from the Senate in October of 1825 and really makes it his quest over the next three and a half years or so to do everything he can to make sure that Q does not get reelected. So the Tennessee legislature, they're like, hey, Andy Jack, come here. He's like, I am here. It's 1828. Andy Jack's like, I know it's 1828. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that on my phone the other day. (laughs) Okay, it's your time to shine. I had a reminder set up. Remind me when it's time to run for president again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he gets some buddies together. Uh, namely John C. Calhoun, Marty, or Martin Van Buren, and Thomas Ritchie to come to his aid. And Van Buren has some friends up in Philadelphia and Richmond, and they all have this idea to revive the old Republican Party and give it a new name, the Democratic Party, and forge this national organization that will be robust and organized. So Jackson and Calhoun uh, became his running mate, just destroy Adams in the 1828 election. So during this time, Jackson's opponents refer to him as a donkey, (laughs) but not the word donkey, another word for donkey. Yeah. So Jackson was like, Hey, I kind of like that name. So he's like, I think I'll use that as my symbol. And uh, it kind of worked for a moment, but then it fizzled out. But the donkey actually becomes the symbol for the Democratic Party. Yeah, actually, the uh, Thomas Nast, the, the cartoonist, actually popularizes this and makes it the symbol for the Democratic Party years later. So um, that's down the road a little bit. So this campaign is a little bit different than some others in the past. It gets really personal really fast. So neither neither campaign really sends out their candidate to um, speak to the people and stuff like that. You know, they're they're not trying to um, have the individual's campaign like in the past has happened a couple times, but they're both getting attacked like hardcore. And the press says, oh, Andy Jack's wife, Rachel. She's a bigamist. She was married before. And technically, this is true. Um, Which, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets said about candidates, and a lot of it's true. Actually, it kind of (laughs) wasn't. If you want to get really super technical, it was. But uh, Andrew Jackson says, listen, I don't care what you say about me. Do whatever you want. But I will never forgive you if you attack my wife. And shortly thereafter, she suddenly dies. And right before he is inaugurated, he di- she dies. And, you know, Andy Jack is understandably upset at the Adams campaigners and probably Adams indirectly um, also because he thought that she died from stress, which may or may not have been true. But uh, he said at her funeral, may God Almighty forgive her murderers. I never can. Keep in mind that... I mean, this whole issue of her being married before it was 
30 years prior to this. And just, well, if you know anything about Andy Jack, he's not going to let anything go. So he carries that with him. But, uh, yeah, that must have been quite the clash. Yeah. I mean, Q had a very rough personality. Right. And Andy Jack didn't soon forget things. So I can imagine that that was a very interesting presidential campaign to be alive at that time. Doesn't Andy Jack kind of just look like a movie villain to you? Like any any paintings you see of him? He looks like somebody who could do some damage. Yeah, like he'd kill your dog if you got... Yes. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So we've all heard the term Jacksonian democracy, and that is the spread of democracy in the terms of passing political power from established elites to ordinary voters. And that's exactly what the age of Jackson did. It brought a lot of commoners to Washington. And, um, you know, we've talked about that before, what he did. It kind of manifested itself in White House parties at the inauguration that got a little crazy, but he was a firm believer that the president's authority came from the people. And so instead of just choosing party favorites, he selected plain businessmen whom he intended to control. And um, probably one of his, he would look at it as one of his best appointments was having Martin Van Buren being his secretary of state because you've got somebody who is extremely loyal to Jackson and also a shrewd politician. He also brings in John Eaton from Tennessee as a secretary of war. And well, we did a whole episode about John Eaton essentially uh, at one point. Didn't we do that? Yeah, we did an episode on that. About the Eaton Uh, affair. About the Eaton affair. But, you know, it involved John Eaton pretty well. Uh, And a couple other names you might recognize. Samuel Ingham, uh, John Branch, John Berrien, William T. Berry. Uh, You've probably heard at least two or three of those here on this podcast. Uh, Jackson's choices, though, not real successful. Uh, You know, it's just full of gossip and hatred for each other and backbiting, especially between... Eaton and Calhoun and, yes, even Van Buren. So most of them leave. Most of them are gone. Most of them get kicked out, and only Barry sticks around. And Jackson's kind of gets the picture that he shouldn't just pick people that he wants to control, and he picks some other people, and things work out a little better for that time. So as we talked about just a few moments ago, that first inauguration uh, got a little crazy. So it's March in 1829, and... He takes the oath of office on the east portico of the Capitol, and he invites the public to come to the White House ball, because why not? So many poor people come out, they're in their handmade clothes, and the crowd gets so large that the guards can't do anything to keep them out of the White House. (laughs) So, you know, this place is packed, Uh, dishes and decorative pieces inside the White House were broken and some people stood on chairs in their muddy boots just to get a look at Andy Jack and the crowd became so wild that the attendants poured punch in tubs and put it out on the White House lawn to lure people outside (laughs) and uh, yeah 
neighbors started calling him King Mob. Yeah. So there you go. Another nickname for Andy Jack. Tell you what. Yeah. So we've talked about the buddy coat affair and the whole issue with the Secretary of War, John Eaton, and his wife, Peggy, and how all kinds of rumors were flying around with Mrs. Calhoun starting things. And it just became a nightmare situation where, like Ben said, everybody ends up resigning (laughs) except the postmaster and uh well what does the postmaster general do yeah who who even knows so but if there's anything that just about everybody can agree with andy jack is there are some sides of him that are well less than noble yeah one of them is of course the slavery issue and the other is the Indian removal policy. Yeah, so all the way back since when James Madison was in office and Andy Jack was the military commander, uh, Andy Jack is kind of like the chief diplomatic officer to the American Indians, which basically just means not at all diplomatic in any sense of the word. And Madison would you know, meet up with different groups of Indians and encourage them to not any longer be hunter-gatherers and, hey, maybe you should put on a suit and come into town and do some work or something. And this just isn't working for them. They're not going to do that. And Jackson, during his years in office, makes a bunch of treaties with American tribes and wants to go into the South and the Northwest and everything. And so, you know, it seems like there's a good relationship with them because there's not that many wars but really all he's doing is getting them to move out of the areas where they belong, where they are have a, a rightful claim to, um, but not because they were allowed to by the United States, because the United States decided they wanted to land instead. So Jackson actually would sometimes be involved in the treaty process, and sometimes he wouldn't. But basically all he's doing with these treaties is having them sign a document that they probably didn't fully understand, to say that they would leave the area or basically be attacked. And guess what? They didn't leave the area because they didn't understand. Yeah. So keep in mind, prior to Jackson, all of the presidents basically were very much of the opinion that, well, yeah, we kind of don't want the Native Americans where they are, but uh, we'll just tolerate it and it'll work. It'll work itself out. But Jackson is the first one who is like, no, I'm going to tell these people the land west of the Mississippi that belongs to you Indians and Congress, you need to work with me here and we're going to relocate the Native Americans. So in 1830, Congress passes the Indian Removal Act. Jackson signs it into law. And the act authorizes the president to negotiate treaties to buy tribal lands in the east in exchange for lands further west outside of existing U.S. state borders. So the passage of the bill was Jackson's first legislative triumph, and it marked the Democratic Party's emergence into American political society. And this act was very popular in the South, Because, well, they discovered gold on the Cherokee (laughs) land. Yeah, well, just wait till they find it out west where the Native Americans moved. Yeah. That'll be interesting. 
the state of Georgia did become involved with some different disputes, and some of them were even taken up to the Supreme Court. And realistically, <laughs> John Marshall, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, said, um, Georgia, you can't really impose your laws upon the Cherokees. Like, you can't do that. So Andy Jack is um, given the attribution for this this wording, but who knows if he really said it. John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. And basically what he's saying is, yeah, they're saying, he's saying they can't get rid of him, but let him try and say that for real, that he, they can't get rid of him because we're going to. So all that to say, they get rid of a lot of Native Americans uh, and get, push them out of the territory that they were in. And uh, after Jackson's gone, actually, uh, Martin Van Buren sends out a bunch of troops to get rid of some of the Native American tribes and send them out to, quote, relocate them. So um, a, a lot of Cherokee Indians and, and other Indians as well died during the Trail of Tears, which may or may not constitute an episode uh, sometime in the future. But um, things weren't pretty, basically, is what we're getting at. Andrew Jackson wanted the land that they were on. He wanted them to be to be civilized as he thought they should be, as did, of course, many other people at that time and before. Um, but he actually started pushing it, and it ended pretty terribly for the Native Americans. Yeah. So not to just gloss over that, and that's certainly not our intention, but shifting gears, there were some things that Andy Jack did do while president that were actually very positive. So we'll talk about those. Just keep in mind that we do recognize that those are very painful spots or bruises on, um, on our history. Jackson did purge the government of corruption from some of the previous administrations. He launched a presidential investigation into all executive cabinet offices and departments. And during his tenure in office, large amounts of money were put into the hands of public officials. And Jackson believed appointees should be hired on merit. And so he withdrew many candidates that he believed were lax in their handling of money. And so Jackson asked Congress to reform embezzlement laws. Um, he reduced fraudulent applications for federal pensions, uh, revenue laws to prevent evasion of customs duties, and laws to improve good government accounting. So um, one, away, one of the ways that this really came to light was his postmaster... Um, Barry resigned after a congressional investigation into the Postal Service revealed mismanagement of the mail services and some favoritism in contracts and so on. So there was a lot of reform that went on. Another thing that's kind of interesting, and you're going to hear a lot of this in the upcoming weeks about should we have the Electoral College? This is nothing new, this argument for the abolition of the Electoral College, which wouldn't that have been a shame if they abolished it way back then? <laughs> we probably we wouldn't, wouldn't have thought have of this name. name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Jackson was very much against the concept of the Electoral College. He said that the president and vice president should be popularly elected. 
yeah, it's a common uh, common belief, and it's certainly something, like Jason said, that you will be hearing in the days to come, guaranteed. And you'll probably hear no one or very few people say anymore that the Electoral College should stay in place, but you also won't find anybody calling for it to actually have any action on it. So um, I usually hear arguments against the Electoral College. You may hear other ones, or uh, I don't know what I think is best (laughs) myself, but uh, it's certainly an interesting discussion. Anyway, when Jackson, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. When Andy Jack gets into (laughs) office in 1829, he enforces the Tenure of Office Act, and this actually gets passed by uh, President Monroe back in 1820. And in, basically what the, the act does is limits any offices that are appointed to have tenure and basically says, okay, the president is now able to basically remove or appoint anybody he wants at any time. And, you know, if you have a rotation in the office this kind of prevents the idea of having either a father to son succession or letting one person just bring in their best friend and not anybody else get a legitimate chance at it. So um, this is a great thing for the country, especially at this time. And uh, (laughs) at least it's a great thing for the American people. A lot of the people who were displaced and uh, who (laughs) got kicked out or their friends got kicked out, were pretty irritated by it. There were really only about 20% of federal office holders uh, that got uh, ousted, but people greatly exaggerated that. Yeah. So another thing that Jackson was involved in was the nullification crisis, also known as the secession crisis. And this really came down to a state's right argument. And his political ally and Vice President John C. Calhoun um, had a a disagreement over this, and it didn't end too well for their relationship. But uh, what you need to know for the purposes of this episode is that Andy Jack was very much supportive of the union and making sure that the union superseded a state's right to overrule the federal government. And uh, Calhoun took exception to that. And uh, his native South Carolina, go figure, Ben, threatened to secede over this (laughs) issue. But um, he was very much of the opinion that uh, his state, at least, South Carolina, had the right as a sovereign state to disagree with certain tariffs, certain laws that the federal government had imposed. So some rumblings going on. Yeah. Hey, let's fast forward up to 1832. And uh, if you remember, the bank, the second bank of the United States is actually chartered by James Madison back when he's the president in 1816. And, you know, this is after the War of 1812, kind of decimates the uh, economy and uh, Monroe actually brings in Nicholas Biddle as the bank's third and last chief executive, and uh, he submits a renewal in 1832 to have the bank go for another four years because the uh, original 20-year charter was set to end. And Jackson's like, you know what? This bank is corrupt, and it's a monopoly, and most 
people who are profiting from it are not from America. So no, I'm going to veto the fact that this can happen and forget it. We're not having, we're not having this national bank. And Jackson pretty much says, you know, the bank is for the wealthy. I'm not for the wealthy. No bank. So the National Republican Party immediately says, all right, Jackson, fine. This is a political issue. We're going to undermine your popularity. We're going to destroy you. Also, we want our bank and our money. So as you can already probably tell from the writing on the wall, this becomes like the primary issue in the election of 1832. Probably a bad time politically to veto something, but a really good time if uh, the charter is about to renew. Yeah, it actually ends up that the U.S. Senate censures Jackson in 1834 for his action in removing U.S. funds from the Bank of the United States. And, of course, this was a political maneuver, at least if you're a Jackson supporter. (laughs) This was a political maneuver that was led by Senator Henry Clay. And um, this did a lot to perpetuate some of that animosity between the two. Jackson called Clay, quote, reckless and as full of fury as a drunken man in the brothel. (laughs) And the issue was very divisive in the Senate. The censure was approved. And uh, the next time the Jacksonians had a majority in the Senate, the censure was expunged. So we don't even know what we're talking about at this point then because it's off the record. That's right. So one thing about Jackson... He was a polarizing figure, as we've talked about. He, well, there was an attempted assassination in 1835 outside the Capitol. Jackson was leaving through the East Portico after a funeral, and a unemployed house painter from England, he aimed a pistol at Jackson, and it misfired. Lawrence, who is the deranged attempted assassin pulls out a second pistol it also misfires (laughs) and it's amazing because they say that there is no reason why these guns didn't work because they tested and retested them and when they tested them they fired off so like what are the odds of that right yeah so they restrained lawrence and um Jackson, actually, they, they probably had to restrain Jackson, too, because he just goes after him with his cane. And <laughs> uh, Davy Crockett is actually there, too, and he helps restrain Lawrence while they're at it. So they're asking him, hey, what what the heck, dude? Why are you trying to shoot this guy? Why are you trying to shoot the president? And, of course, he blames Jackson for the, losing his job. And he figures, oh, if the president's dead, then money would be... Uh, more plenty because, you know, the the whole Bank of the United States thing and all that kind of stuff. So he figures um, if the president's dead, I'm going to be better off, which, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But certainly um, the guy was crazy because he told everybody that he was um, Richard III, who'd been dead since 1485. So he thought Jackson was his clerk. And who knows if this was an act or if this was real, but I think you have to be crazy to try to assassinate anybody, let alone the president. Yeah, and to think that you're two and a half centuries old. Right. I mean, that could have been an act, but I'm saying it. <laughs> I'm saying he was still crazy, even if that was an act. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in 1836, 
the new Republic of Texas has been established and they wanted to be annexed into the United States. But Jackson was hesitant about recognizing Texas as a state because of the slavery issues. Texas was a slave territory. So a lot of controversy there with with that. Yeah, for sure. So after Jackson, I'm sorry, Andy Jack, I keep making this mistake and I shouldn't. After Andy Jack serves his two terms as president, he goes back to the Hermitage Plantation and immediately begins whipping it into shape. Uh, it had been poorly managed by his adopted son, Andrew Jr. And Jackson, you know, he's not doing real well as far as his health, but he still remains influential. And uh, any time there was any kind of discussion or anything of secession, he said, I will die with the Union. So people respect him, but they don't like him because he's associated with the panic of 1837, at least pretty early in his retirement, that was the case. Um, he, you know, he still tried to denounce any kind of corruption he thought he saw or anything like that, even from the the bench, I guess you could say. So Jackson dies at his plantation on June 8th, 1845, at the age of 78 years old. He had chronic tuberculosis, dropsy, and heart failure. He left his estate to his adopted son, Andrew Jackson Jr., and you can visit the Hermitage today. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy guy, uh, brilliant guy, controversial guy. Uh, there's a lot to say about Andy Jack for sure. And um, we hope that we've given you a little bit more into uh, kind of the background of things. Uh, as you know, he's on the $20 bill. We had an episode about him being replaced on the $20 bill. We have an episode about the Petticoat Affair. We had an episode. There's a lot of episodes that kind of contain things about Andrew Jackson. So just go download them all if you haven't and listen to them. And you should be in good shape. Yeah. So thanks for listening, and if you have time, which if you have a minute to a minute and a half, you do have time, head over to electioncollege.com slash iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It helps us get this podcast in front of more awesome people just like you. Yeah, and uh, make sure to engage with us on our social media channels. We've really been enjoying some interaction with you guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also, if you have 17 minutes to spare, you should pick up The Dueling Letters on audible.com. You can get there by going to electioncollege.com slash duelingletters and uh, pick up that audiobook that Jason and I narrated. We'll see you next time. Thanks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.